WTB Afterwards with guest host Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center. This week, Justice John Paul Stevens and his latest book, Six Amendments, How and Why We Should Change the Constitution. The retired U.S. Supreme Court justice targets gun violence, the death penalty, gerrymandering, and campaign finance in amendments he believes would better protect and empower citizens. The program is about an hour. Welcome, Justice Stevens. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, it's so great to see you. Uh, you honored the National Constitution Center a few weeks ago by visiting us. The Constitution Center, as you know, is a, the only institution in America that has a congressional charter to disseminate information about the Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And I can't think of a better book to discuss uh, in connection with that mission than your wonderful new book, Six Amendments, How and Why We Should Change the Constitution. You've proposed six constitutional amendments on topics ranging from campaign finance and sovereign immunity and political gerrymandering to gun control and the death penalty and the anti-commandeering principle. Uh, all of these are cases where the Supreme Court ruled uh, differently, and, and, and you dissented in many of these cases. Tell me why you decided to write the book and why you decided to propose these six constitutional amendments. Well, it's sort of a project that just kind of grew, to tell you the truth. Uh, it is the immediate cause was the uh, uh, killing of the school children in Connecticut and the New York Times story about uh, the fact that the anti-commandeering rule places an obstacle in the way of the government's getting total information on background checks to precede the uh, purchase of guns and I had not actually realized before I read that New York Times story that that rule does in fact increase the likelihood that a, a, a person will be eligible, will, will be allowed to purchase guns when he shouldn't have. And that did not, was not a cause of that particular tragedy, but it, it likely may have been a cause of other similar tragedies. Well, this anti-commandeering rule, which is your First Amendment, and I've dog-eared all of them uh, with these high-tech pieces of paper, uh, sounds technical, but is actually quite important. And I'm going to read the amendment that you propose, and you can uh, help explain it. You say that adding just the four words and other public officials after the word judges and the supremacy clause would allow Congress to impose man mandatory duties on public officials in every state. Uh, what, ex what does that mean, and what is the problem that you're seeking to remedy? Well, <clears throat> I think that the Supremacy Clause, properly construed, would already have allowed the government to impose mandatory duties on state uh, officials, the police, for example. They, I would have thought they could have re requested a local policeman to help to search uh, passengers at an airline terminal or something of that kind. But the court, is, as you know, decided otherwise in the, in the Prince case. And I think the potential consequences of the decision are more serious than many people realize. But they're not the kind of consequences that arise every day, but they're, they're kind of a time bomb sitting in the back room, as far as I'm concerned, where it may, may in fact impede action that could be terribly important in a, in a national situation. 
The Prince case that you mentioned involved the Gun-Free School Zones Act. It was a federal law that Congress passed to regulate guns in schools. The Supreme Court, as you suggested, struck it down on the grounds that federal officials can't command state officers to carry out certain duties. And you presciently objected and said that there might be a future terrorist attack, and this was before 9-11. That's right. And you said that this would make it hard to respond to terrorism and other acts of violence. Uh, that, that's exactly right. And and I really think that the, the rule in place now would interfere with uh, a draft law, for example, where it, both in World War II and in other, other prior uh, situations, the federal government has made important use of state officials to help get the Army drafted. And uh, I, I do think it's more important than, than people realize. You also said that the court misconstrued previous precedents, that uh, before the court had refused to endorse this broad states' rights principle, and in Prince it really uh, changed the law by exalting state sovereignty to a degree that was not justified by history or precedent. Well, that's true, although it's interesting enough that the the majority opinion in Prince did not cite either of the two cases that would have been provided better support for its holding than than any case they did cite. One of them was a, a pre-Civil War case that had, had basically held that there was a, a, an anti-commandeering rule. And Justice Marshall, in a, a later opinion, overruled that case and basically said it was the product of another part of our history that has long gone by. It was pre-Civil War and pre-14th Amendment. You know, this is a big theme that runs throughout the book. In your view, the Civil War and the Reconstruction Amendments that followed it transformed the relation between federal and state power and gave the federal government broad power to protect uh, minorities and to solve national problems. And you object in many of these cases that some of your colleagues on the court were adopting a pre-Civil War vision of state sovereignty that is not justified after the Reconstruction Amendments themselves. I think that, I think that's right, and I, I really think, although I don't say as much about this in the book as I learned while, while reading and uh, trying to put it together, I think that our, the President Grant and some of his immediate successors are not adequately appreciated for the, the work they did, and I think that there was sort of a, an underlying campaign among some historians who were partial to the to the South largely to cast doubt on the capacity of of Grant, and I think he's a much better president than people generally assume. You also think that the Reconstruction Amendments gave much broader powers to Congress than the court is currently recognizing in a range I, of cases. I think that's correct. Yeah. You have in your discussion of sovereign immunity, that's another topic that sounds technical, but I know you feel very strongly about it and has big consequences. It also is a states' rights issue. You're going to be able to explain it, uh, of course, far better than I can. Let me read the uh, amendment that you propose when it comes to sovereign immunity, and you'll tell me why you think it's important. You say that neither the Tenth Amendment, the Eleventh Amendment, nor any other provision of this Constitution shall be construed to provide any state, state agency, or state officer with an immunity from liability for violating any act of Congress or any provision of this Constitution. Why do you propose that amendment? Well, it's kind of a long story, and it's really an an interesting story, because the doctrine that is now in place is, according to the majority holdings, is kind of implicit in the plan of the Convention as, as part of the Constitution. 
It started out in the Chisholm against Georgia. The question is whether there was a common law immunity to protect uh, Georgia from paying its uh, its debts. And it, 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 the court held by a vote of four to one, there, there was no such immunity. And then the 11th Amendment was adopted in response to that decision. And for years, particularly with opinions by John Marshall, the amendment really was construed very narrowly to apply only to cases in which the state itself was asserting a sovereign immunity. And he, he basically construed it in a way that if relief could be granted by, against other state officers, the amendment would be no obstacle. And that was basically the state of the law until after the Civil War. And during the period of Reconstruction, the process of re reinterpreting the rule began. And particularly in some cases arising out of Louisiana, the, the court uh, basically, they first held that Louisiana could not welch on, a, on an obligation. Then a few years later, after there had been a change in administration and the, the northern troops had been removed from the south, the court took the opposite view and, and decided a case which really is embarrassingly inconsistent with Marshall's early ruling. And I really think that it, the, it's not, it, it, there was a, there's a connection between the Reconstruction uh, states' rights uh, attitudes that developed in those years and the doctrine of sovereign immunity, which later on became not only protected from paying their bets, debts, but it's d it developed over the years that it now protects the states from uh, uh, having their agents be required to obey federal law. And the act no longer relies on the 11th Amendment, which didn't fit very well anyway. It, it moved into the area where uh, it's implicit in the plan of conve the convention, even though four of the five pe people in the Schism case didn't understand that. But then it, it developed to the point where they the court required stricter statements of uh, federal intent to impose liability on um, uh, state state officials. The Adascadero uh, Hospital case basically announced that rule. And in response to that rule, Congress adopted several statutes expressly requiring the states to obey federal law in, in intellectual property area for the most part, patent cases, copyright cases, trademark, and so forth. And this was on a bipartisan basis that the court, and the Congress generally imposed these rules, it just made a lot of sense. But then later on in the uh, uh, Indian case, the name of this case me at the moment, the court basically held that all those statutes were unconstitutional. And so the, that's one of the reasons I say this really should be a nonpartisan issue. It's because I think the history of the uh, of the whole, whole development shows that Congress did not treat it as a partisan issue, and they didn't have much uh, respect for this doctrine that goes back uh, to early uh, times in in England when the uh, king presumably could do no wrong. You helped me understood it. I never could get it in law school, but you, you've just said it that basically the Eleventh Amendment was intended to prevent citizens of one state from suing a state for non-payment of debts, but not for not enforcing federal law. No. And by invoking this doctrine of the dignity of the states, the modern court is doing exactly what John Marshall said they shouldn't do, and basically exalting a pre-Civil War vision of states' rights. And it's interesting you know, that the, the opinions are really quite a 
are, they, they do not explain why this doctrine makes any sense, except they want, some of them use the word dignity as the basis, which is, in one of John Marshall's opinions, he specifically rejected dignity as a justification. I, it's remarkable. I was really struck by that. You talk about nonpartisanship and neutrality, and that has been a theme of your jurisprudence in arguing that political gerrymanders should be able to be challenged when they're not drawn neutrally, uh, in, in arguing uh, in favor of campaign finance reform. You believe that the state has a fundamental duty to act impartially and in a nonpartisan manner. Tell me more about where that belief came from. Well, I really think that's the best way to interpret the Equal Protection Clause. It, it imposed on the states a duty to govern impartially, not to favor one segment of society or one group over another. And, that, and if you focus on that central uh, requirement, it re really makes things awfully easy, at least does to me. And, and, and it, it's a doctor that frankly struck me at that time I was working on a patronage case back on the Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit before I came on the court. We had a case involving uh, the discharge of a whole bunch of uh, employees by the Secretary of State of Illinois who basically said you either join, switch parties or you lose your job. And that was the, the way the patronage system worked. And it was ex just accepted as part of, of, of uh, practice. But we decided in the, in the uh, case I cite in the book that that should not be the rule. It's inconsistent with the duty to govern impartially. And since then, over the years, the court has adopted that view. And it, originally it was kind of uh, thought, well, how could we possibly change something that had been in the, in the law as long as the patronage practices? But they have, in fact, for the most part, uh, gone along with that change again, over some, uh, dissents of some members of the court. You just mentioned one area where your colleagues embraced this neutrality rule, but there are others where courts have rejected it. And you were particularly vigorous on the question of partisan gerrymandering. That is, cases where legislatures draw districts in order to favor one party over another. I was at a conference recently and heard Bill Gates, uh, who was asked, what's the one thing Congress can do to really reduce political polarization in America? And he said, eliminate partisan gerrymandering. And this was a conversation with David Brooks, who responded, but Congress won't do that because the incumbents want to protect themselves. That means that the courts are the only refuge, and yet in your book you describe that although all of your colleagues agree that extreme partisan gerrymandering violates the Constitution, the court has tended to hold that it's not justiciable. In other words, that courts are not able to entertain the challenges. Why have they held that, and what do you propose to do to solve that problem? Well, I, I, first of all, I, I think it's important that no judge, as far as I know, has ever defended the practice. So the basic rule is that what is going on now is quite wrong. And it's not a partisan issue because the Democrats are guilty of the same uh, activity in states like Maryland and California and so forth, and the Republicans have been guilty of that activity in Pennsylvania and, and uh, Texas, for example. But the, there, there will be a change of administration in, in those states eventually, and it, if the if the uh, legislatures and the administrators think in the long run 
I think they will recognize that both parties will be better off in the long run by simply getting rid of this practice and, and let, letting the uh, election contests pr work on the merits of the respective parties. So uh, it, it may be naive, of course, but I, I think just as the wisdom of the, end, uh, the, the approach that got rid of pa patronage practices, largely, I think that the uh, states and their own legislature may realize it's in their best interest in the long run to have their elections fair and between the two parties. Uh, I was at a panel uh, recently at the National Constitution Center where uh, Congressman Lowenthal, who's proposed a bill that would require Congress to create independent commissions in all states to do districting, uh, and you are uh, a hero of yours, he's read your book, uh, he found that there would be more competition constituents would be more responsive to their constituents and they'd also be more moderate because they'd have an incentive to actually win general elections rather than having safe seats. What are some other benefits that you think would follow from eliminating partisan gerrymandering? Well, uh, I, do th I do think that uh, when candidates primarily have to beat the, the members of their own party and they're not worried about uh, the general election, they tend to become more doctrinaire and they tend to avoid a compromise, and I, I do think that the the, the fact that primaries are the, the 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 big deal in the election uh, does have an adverse effect on their actual performance in office after they've been elected, and I do think that's one of the explanations for the the more uh, partisan divide in Congress uh, today than there had been uh, years ago when I worked there for. <laughs> When you worked in the in the U.S. Uh, Congress, yes, I worked as a associate counsel, Republican counsel for the Seller Committee, the uh, House Committee on uh, the Study of Monopoly Power, and then there, members of the two parties did work together on much le le legislation. There were high visibility bills where they tended to be more, much more partisan, but uh, it was a different Congress than, than we have today. And of course, the Congress that confirmed you to the Supreme Court, I think you had a unanimous vote as well. Uh, well, 98. 98. The two didn't, didn't vote that day. 98. That, 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 that counts. Hard to imagine that today. What, what's, what's happened? Is partisan gerrymandering partly responsible for the fact that Congress is more polarized now? I, I really think it is. I, I, th I think uh, Bill Gates, I hadn't heard about that before, but I think he's dead right. Yeah. Well, the trick, though, is f coming up with a judicial standard for uh, policing partisan gerrymandering. And you're very uh, sophisticated and specific about what, how to identify an unconstitutional partisan gerrymandering. And you have an amendment proposed, so I think I'll, I'll read it again because the text is important. Your amendment would say districts represented by members of Congress or by members of any state legislative body shall be compact and composed of contiguous territory the state shall have the burden of justifying any departure from this requirement by reference to neutral criteria, such as natural, political, or historic boundaries or demographic changes, the interest in enhancing or preserving the political power of the party in control of the state government is not such a neutral criteria. Tell us how, why you chose that language. Well, <laughs> we also have in the book a few examples of partisan gerrymanders. And uh, Potter Stewart would have had the rule as plain as, as could be when he'd say, you can, I, can, I, can, uh, I know it when I see it, <laughs> he described uh, uh, obscenity. 
But it is true that the that the uh, there are many glaring examples of, of very odd-shaped districts that have no justification whatsoever. It isn't just a prima primary reason or anything like that, but they have no justification whatsoever except to give the party in power an advantage at the election. And that, it, that there must be a duty to govern impartially requires government officials generally and legislatures more specifically to have some neutral reason for their action. They can't pay campaign finances out of the state treasury. They've got to finance them on, uh, the actions independently. And similarly, they should not be motivated entirely by a pol political consideration in drawing the district. And they, the standards for determining whether a partisan gerrymander has occurred that I recommend are precisely the same as have been in place for a good many years with respect to racial gerrymandering. And if they can, t if they can tell a racial gerrymander by the size and shape, by the shape of the district, there's no reason in the world why they couldn't apply exactly the same standard to a partisan gerrymander because you just look at it and you see something's fishy. And there is uh, the, there's the same need to avoid gerrymandering in both racial or partisan uh, grounds. You are very consistent in that regard. Now, in some of those racial gerrymandering cases, you dissented and said the court shouldn't have pleased those racial gerrymanders. If the court were to apply the same standard to racial and partisan gerrymanders, would you be in favor of uh, judicial intervention in both cases? Yes, I, I would. I think that the, the, the greater benefit would flow from having a simple rule in both cases. The, 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 the glitch in history was that the original gerrymandering case was in Tuskegee, Alabama, where the gerrymandering was designed to exclude the blacks from participating, from voting in the municipal government. And later on, the court applied the same rule to gerrymanders that were designed to give minorities better representation when they've been the victims of discrimination. And I dissented in some of those cases because I thought that the the basic rule of equality should not prevent rules that were designed to equalize the, the minority voters and the majority. But having decided, made racial gerrymandering, whether pro-minority or anti-minority, a violation of the Constitution, you, it seems to me you should just simply apply the same rule that you've applied in race cases to political cases, and the problem would easily be solved. And I should mention, the uh, the fight in all our gerrymandering case has been on whether or not we could develop standards, which we did develop a racial case, but nobody, no member of the court, has actually said on the merits this practice is justified. Even Justice Scalia, who is the strongest opponent of developing a judicial uh, rule against gerrymandering, does, does not defend the practice on the merits. So this is a practice that all justices say can be unconstitutional, that people like Bill Gates and others from all sides of the spectrum say is the main political problem facing the country today, and yet the court says that there's no judicial 
solution. In, in its latest cases, that's right. Yes. You do give examples of gerrymanders in the book with this beautiful color illustration, and you tell the great story of how when you insisted on including this illustration in a judicial opinion, Chief Justice Berger was concerned it was too expensive. It would cost $3,000, <laughs> but he agreed to do it because you, you had one less law clerk than everyone else, exactly, so you were saving exactly the court right. some money. Show the, uh, what, what is it about this district that looks so funny and that struck your uh, notice? Well, uh, if you look at it closely, you can see that some of these districts just don't make any sense at all. Uh, District 5, for example, goes all, all around. Uh, and, and in fact, several of the districts are just without any rational justi justification in terms, if you just look at the shape. And the, I tell the story of the particular election that was involved. This is another instance why it, it may benefit one party today, but then the elections may change because that and, and that particular map benefited the Democrats, if I remember correctly. And even though Ronald Reagan was very very popular in the following election, the gerrymandering kept the Democrats in control. Yeah. It's a great example. I should say during our panel at the Constitution Center. I said gerrymander, and someone corrected me and said it should be pronounced gerrymander because Elbridge Gerry uh, was the uh, originator of this. T tell the story of who Jerry or Gerry was and why the thing is named after well, him. Well, he, he was the, uh, I guess he was the governor of, of uh, Massachusetts at the, at the time they, uh, they developed the first, I guess you should call it gerrymander. Gerrymander. <laughs> it's the church Latin pronunciation. <laughs> and it, but it is funny, I think it's generally called gerrymander. Yeah. But uh, we, we tell the story of how with less than a majority of voters, he was able to retain control of the state by drawing the very strange uh, shaped districts that he did. And uh, the name, he, he's the originator of the practice, as far as I know, and, that, and it bears his name. because. And, and the district looked like a salamander, so they, oh, called, it, right. the, so they called it a, a gerrymander. The press gerrymander. described it, a, the yeah. district, the, he did, drew, did look like a salamander. So. But you've just explained to us why this is such a serious problem. Through gerrymandering, or gerrymandering, you can have a situation where a minority of state voters controls a majority of state seats. Oh, that's right, and and actually, I think I'm not sure, but I have been told, I believe, that the majority of the voters uh, in, in voting in congressional elections actually were Democrats or voted Democrat, but the Republicans had got a majority of the seats. Remarkable. Yeah. Could that be? I, I don't. Uh, some have suggested that that might also be a violation of the Republican form of government clause that says that that all states have to have a Republican form of government, which means majority rule. It, 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 it's, it's certainly inconsistent with what we think should be the, 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 the view that the majority should be able to have a majority of representatives in, in the House. This Texas map that you show, I think this was the one in Shaw versus Reno, and the joke was it sort of snakes down, it gets big and then thin and big again, and the joke was if you drove down the district with both car doors open, you'd kill everyone in the district. <laughs> <or something laughs> like that. Well, this was the Shaw v. Reno district, yeah. and the court struck that down as an unconstitutional racial, racial gerrymander. That's right. But uh, political gerrymanders can't be challenged. And if, if the Republicans and the Democrats came up with exactly the same Say they say we can't we can't do anything about it. Yeah. So you express to me inspiring faith that when citizens hear your arguments, they'll adopt them. You say in your prologue, I'm confident that the soundness of each of my proposals will become more and more evident, and that ultimately each will be adopted. 
Are, uh, did, do you believe that citizens will adopt the anti-gerrymandering amendment once they come to realize the significance of the problem? Well, I don't know just how much time will elapse before they do it. But, but you know, uh, Texas for a long time was a Democratic state, and then it became a Republican state after civil rights legislation was adopted, and other states have changed, too. And one of the things that may cause change is dissatisfaction with, the, with uh, the, the abuse of power that the majorities have engaged in. I think that's what happened in California and Arizona, where independent commissions were bipartisan reforms embraced by both yeah. parties. But it is tricky for incumbents to vote for it. Is it possible that we could have a we could continue to have a situation, at least in the short term, where there's this big political or constitutional problem, but no congressional or judicial remedy? I think that's right. Which is frustrating. Uh, I think uh, we're going to take a short break and return in just a moment to continue talking about this wonderful new book, Six Amendments, How and Why We Should Change the Constitution. On the Go Afterwards is available via podcast through iTunes and XML. Visit booktv.org and click podcasts on the upper left side of the page. Select which podcast you'd like to download and listen to afterwards while you travel. Justice Stevens, you are especially passionate about the subject of campaign finance reform. And you propose a constitutional amendment that says the following, neither the First Amendment nor any other provision of this Constitution shall be construed to prohibit the Congress or any state from imposing reasonable limits on the amount of money that candidates for public office or their supporters may spend in election campaigns. And in the chapter, you say that this is consistent with the history of the First Amendment, and you note that President Teddy Roosevelt proposed a bill that was passed that said that corporations should be treated differently than individuals when it comes to campaign spending. Tell me first about the history of the First Amendment and campaign spending and why you think it's appropriate to treat corporations and other non-voters differently than voters in elections. Well, uh, because the framers decided that the voters should elect, <laughs> elect the, their representatives. And uh, uh, I think that in, uh, in the, the history, has emphasized the fact that corporations don't vote and they have business purposes that motivate most of the, their actions. And I think a lot of the debate in the Citizens United case and in other cases has been whether or not corporations should uh, be allowed to spend uh, their general funds or even with special uh, uh, organizations that they, their shareholders support uh, should sp spend as much money as they do. But actually, as I've reflected on it, I don't think it's just a corporate problem, uh, although that's gotten most of the attention. I think that individuals also get involved in, in election contests in jurisdictions where they do not have the uh, right to vote. And it does seem to me that one of the key cases that the court overruled in Citizen United was a Michigan against the uh, Chamber of Commerce, uh, or Austin against the Chamber of Commerce, in which uh, Michigan per, per, uh, put a, a prohibition against corporate contributions. But actually, it seems to me that they, what they were really concerned about is money coming from non-Michigan sources. 
and of course corporations generally represent interests uh, out-of-state interests frequently and it does seem to me that there is a, a an important difference between the right to participate and support candidates that you have the right to vote for and candidates from from other jurisdictions and the the holding that I is critical in my chapter on the, this issue is part of uh, the decision in, in uh, Buckley against Vallejo it was decided the year I came on the court, but before I was, I, it was decided when I came on the court, but I was not eligible to vote because it, it had been argued uh, before. <clears throat> and in that case, the court said that it violated the First Amendment to to try to limit, he put even limit, reasonable limits on campaign expenditures. Justice White dissented from that holding, and he was the only justice who did. And the, <coughs> the holding has been followed consistently in the, in the excuse me, In the years following that decision, the court has been consistent in holding that limitations on campaign expenditures are impermissible and interfere with the total quantity of speech that is that is used in campaigns. And I think in order to to correct the error in the Citizens United case itself, you basically have to correct the prohibition on the use of expenditures, which does require, in my judgment, a constitutional amendment, because the court uh, it's in, has been almost unanimous in the uh, prior years in its uh, prohibition against uh, 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 limitations on expenditures. The great power of this chapter is that insight that you just shared, that there's a difference between voters contributing in their own election and non-voters, including both corporations and foreigners, contributing to other people's elections. That was central to your criticisms of the McCutcheon case, which the Supreme Court decided recently. The court began by saying that this is about the right of individuals to support their own candidates, but you told Congress recently that that's not right, that they were actually trying to contribute money for other people's elections. That's correct. Tell us more about your criticisms of the McCutcheon case. Uh, that, that's exactly true. And of course, the, the McCutcheon case was decided after uh, I'd written uh, uh, that, the, the chapter. But I think I've included the word reasonable uh, in my proposed amendment because I think that the actual limits that were imposed at the time of the Buckley decision may well have been designed to protect incumbents. And I don't think Justice White f f discussed that possibility in, in his dissent. But I think if, if the limits are placed too low, it could be a valid argument that they are favoring in incumbents. But that's why I, I, I said that, that they should be, uh, there should be the reasonableness requirement, and uh, which I think uh, would, would solve the problem. Because I do, I do think that if Congress focused on reasonable limits, and I, I don't think there's any danger that my former colleagues would actually conclude that any limit whatsoever is unreasonable after, the, after an amendment was adopted to, to correct the, the heart of the problem. Now, the objection, of course, is that reasonableness is not self-defining, and judges would have to decide what was reasonable. 
Uh, Adam Liptak from the New York Times recently asked you a, a good question. He said, would the reasonableness requirement allow restrictions on the New York Times' ability to write an editorial on behalf of any candidate? And what was your response to that? Well, my, my response actually is twofold. Uh, first of all, I don't think such a restriction would be reasonable. It's a, but it, it isn't necessarily the court that would be defining uh, reasonableness. The court would be reviewing a congressional decision as to what it thought was reasonable. And of course there would be a presumption that the, con that the choice Congress made was, was permissible because you certainly would uh, def defer to the legislative judgment at least in the first instance. Then, if it was so obviously, if they if they allowed different limits for different candidates, for example, that would clearly be unreasonable. But but I re I really think the, the amount of discretion that that uh, word would permit uh, uh, Congress to exercise would be far different from the present rule, which says uh, any limit whatsoever, any contribution whatsoever, is impermissible. What would be an example of an unreasonable limit? Well, as I say, one that set the, well, there are two or three examples that come right here. One, one that prohibited uh, newspapers from endorsing uh, candidates. Uh, one that provided a greater latitude for incumbents than for non-incumbents. One that provided uh, a, d a different amount for wealthy uh, candidates and for uh, different can different financial circumstances would seem to be not to be a justification for allowing d uh, different limits. Uh, uh, be it would not be a reasonable uh, action. And in your Citizens United dissent, you also gave the example of how the press is different, and the First Amendment's press clause itself suggests that newspapers should be treated differently than other for-profit corporations. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems to me that the existence of the press clause might provide an adequate justification for treating press uh, differently from uh, the candidates themselves. Is that also your answer to the question that was asked of Justice then Solicitor General Kagan at the Citizens United argument? Could you restrict the circulation of a book? Yeah, I would think so. I suppose <laughs> you might have trouble defining when it's been long enough to be to be a book, but but I. I think a lot of these problems, theoretically, you can't come up with an answer to every hypothetical, but when you actually have concrete proposals in front of you, you can really identify what's unreasonable without much difficulty. One of the many interesting things I learned from this chapter is your discussion of President Obama's statement at the State of the Union that Citizens United would open the floodgates of foreign money into U.S. elections. Justice Alito famously shook his head and said, not true, which went all over YouTube. Uh, but you say that President Obama was actually uh, correct in his description of the possible extension of Citizens United to strike down uh, restrictions on foreign donations in U.S. elections. Uh, the Supreme Court recently refused to so hold, but you're concerned that the logic could actually strike down those limits. Well, I think at the time, immediately after the decision, that was a reasonable interpretation of the decision. And I, I certainly, in my dissent, suggested that was a possible interpretation. As it developed later in the case that I cited some length, uh, or discussed at some length in the book, a three-judge court held that it was permissible to prohibit citizens of Canada and Israel from making contributions to elections in the United States. They, 
they can can not just contributions but ex expenditures they could not spend their own money uh, in support of a candidate and that the, the the underlying rationale for the three-judge district court decision written by Judge Kavanaugh of the, of the, of the District of Columbia uh, Court of Appeals basically was that we have a, there's a justified interest in the, in the government running the election, having the election, control of the election, and not have outsiders come in and tell Americans how to, who, to, who to elect. I mean, the Canadians cannot spend their money. It's, it's precisely the same rationale that would support Michigan's decision that we wouldn't let citizens from Indiana and Wisconsin spend unlimited sums of money trying to influence our elections. How would you state the constitutional dimensions of that principle? That, that states have an interest in preserving the integrity of their own elections? Or? The, the, uh, there is a powerful state interest in having fair elections. It's, and, and it's an interest that can trump the First Amendment right in certain situations. And, and to, to the court, in its, in its views on this issue, have sort of treated the First Amendment issue as trumping everything else. And I think that they failed to give adequate weight to the interest in people running their own show. People running their own show, an interest in fair elections. It goes back to this theme throughout the book of neutrality, nonpartisanship. The government has an obligation to be neutral and fair. You really believe that strongly. That's right. In, in, the con the <coughs> in fairness in the conduct of the elections should uh, enable the government to, to adopt rules that give uh, uh, rival candidates an equal opportunity to persuade uh, the voters. Now the court in Citizens United and more recently in McCutcheon has focused not on that interest in fairness but in the interest in avoiding corruption. And it's defined corruption very narrowly to basically say quid pro quo corruption, uh, you vote for me or I uh, won't give you a lot of money. Uh, is that a broad enough view of corruption, or did the framers have a broader view? In well, mind? The, the, the basic mistake, if, if the court's view of corruption is really the only justification for regulating campaign finance, you, you just rely on the bribery laws would, would take care of it. But there is an, a more powerful interest that has nothing to do with corruption in having uh, elections fair and giving each candidate an equal opportunity to compete, and uh, it, it's a it's not a question of uh, it, it really is a question of ident identifying reasons other than corruption for imposing requirements of fairness in contests between uh, uh, opposing parties. It's the same interest that justifies limiting speech in litigation. When you have an argument before the Supreme Court, you can't go on and on forever. The, the court imposes rules that limit your opportunity to persuade, and they're fair to both parties. They, 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 the main criterion is fair procedure, fair treatment of uh, adversary contestants. And you also give the example of presidential debates and said it wouldn't be fair to give the richest candidate more time than, than everyone else. <laughs> no. No, that, that dawned on me in one of the, watching one of the Republican uh, debates in the pr primary before the last election that certainly the moderator has a duty to treat candidates equally. 
One thing that struck me in the book is so many of your principles rooted in fairness are also rooted in constitutional history. You talk in your Citizens United dissent about the framers' concern that government be responsive to all the people and not just the few. That's exactly that's exactly right. Yeah. Does this have a any bi- biographical source? We had the privilege. I had the privilege of interviewing you years ago, and you talked about your experience on that uh, commission investigating alleged corruption in Chicago of a case where a judge was alleged to have thrown a case in exchange for a bribe. And you very, uh, to great acclaim, said that if a dissent had been issued in that case, the whole scandal might have been avoided. Does this concern with neutrality and you know concern with uh, fair treatment date back to experiences like that? Uh, I suppose it does. Uh, in that case, uh, it was also was involved the appearance of uh, of uh, neutrality because it certainly uh, judges should not be buying stock recommended to them by litigants, which was what happened to a couple of uh, the Illinois Supreme Court justices. But the appearance of, of impartiality is, is very important to the process too. Well, we have we have uh, two more big uh, topics to talk about. And uh, the first one is the death penalty. Uh, you propose an amendment on that score as well. And I'm going to use my high-tech filing system to find it here. Uh, you say, here we go, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments such as the death penalty inflicted. So you would add the words such as the death penalty to the existing words of the Eighth Amendment. You were not always uh, of the belief that the death penalty violated the Constitution. Um, What made you change your mind or feel that the Constitution should be amended to prohibit the death penalty? Well, first of all, death cases are a form of litigation that federal judges, Supreme Court justices, nobody likes. They're very, very unpleasant, expensive time-consuming litigation. Anyone who's exposed to capital litigation for as long as I was is bound to develop a distaste for the whole process. And of course, every the things that change my own views particularly are the fact that there's now available the the punishment of uh, life imprisonment without parole. So that the you don't need the death penalty to avoid uh, deter, to deter f- uh, future misconduct by people who have been convicted. A second thing that's happened over the years is that the court has adopted a number of procedures which actually strengthen the hand of the prosecutor uh, in the in the uh, uh, penalty phase hearing, which seems to me tilts the scales. In, in, in an area of the law in which the scale should tilt the other way. You should use extra precaution to avoid error. And the, the, a, a third thing that happened is that the um, uh, it, the DNA evidence has made it clear that there are a number of people, have been a number of people on death row who, who should never have been there, who were, not, who were innocent. And there, it is therefore true that uh, every time you sentence somebody to death, you run the risk that you may make make a mistake. That you should not, the, the system should not allow the possibility of mistake in a capital case. 
And the, the other thing that's happened over the years is that the court has developed rules that require states to impose the death penalty in a totally painless m manner. Originally, years and years ago, the death penalty was the, the, the theory that whatever the defendant did to his victim, he should suffer the same uh, same consequences. But you can't do that. You cannot impose uh, painful punishment, even administering the death penalty, which means that the capital defendant basically is, is, uh, goes through an anesthetic process that makes it uh, the, the, pain, the, the penalty painless. So it is, it is not a form of retribution that, that does equal uh, the pain that the uh, d uh, defendant imposed on his victim. But the critical thing for me, frankly, is that the more I've thought about it, uh, because everyone agrees that there is some risk of error, even in the wonderful judicial system we have, and as long as there's a risk of error that an innocent man, in fact, a man who's to be executed and put to death by the state is in fact innocent, that is not an acceptable risk that a civilized society should accept, because the gains do not justify taking that kind of risk. You quote your uh, colleague Justice Scalia saying the risk is infinitesimal, I think, 0.02% or something like that. Yes. Is that, uh, I, I take it that's still too big a risk for you? That, that, that is, and I, I, I think anyone has to be troubled by that possibility, and of course, it, it's it's you can't be terribly proud of the fact that the United States is ranked with three or four nations that have a different form of society than we do, and whereas all most of the countries in Western Europe have long ago about abolished the death penalty. You talk about the fact that all members of the court now think it's not permissible to inflict an execution that's deliberately intended to cause pain. And you talk about the mix of chemicals that were used until recently to try to minimize pain, and yet right now we're having a dramatic debate about whether the existingly uh, available chemicals do in fact torture uh, prisoners. Um, what, what, what's, your, what's your view on that, on well, that debate? One of the reasons why the risk is there is that the professionals like the medical profession, the nursing profession, and so forth, do not permit their members, as a matter of ethics, they do not participate in the, in the execution itself. So you necessarily are not dealing with the most skillful people to put, peop to, put people to death. And there's a, a danger of, of botched ex executions like we had the other day, partly because professionals don't think it's a good idea. And the chemicals are no longer available because the suppliers won't make them available. Is it, is it the case that if uh, the current court were to hear a case involving an execution that clearly caused torture, would, would everyone agree that that violates the Eighth Amendment? If the court were to do what? You know, were to review an execution like the one we just saw the other day where the prisoner seemed to be tortured and in, in obvious pain, would, would everyone agree that that was cruel and unusual? I, I'm not sure. They may they agree that it was cruel and unusual, but I'm not sure they would conclude that, uh, that, that it's going to happen enough to make it permanently cruel and unusual. Yeah. You say that the support for death penalty is going down in the country yes, as a it whole is. And, as well. Uh, it, this may be an amendment that the issue may take care of itself by the states 
uh, enacting their own uh, legislation. But it, it does seem to me that the more people actually think about the costs involved, both in human costs and in financial costs, it is terribly expensive litigation. It goes on for years. And, and pe people down in Florida have been in death bureau for 20 and 30 years. It's, it doesn't certainly satisfy the public interest in, in retribution. You reviewed many, many death cases during your, your many decades on the Supreme Court. Was there a case in which you had serious doubts about whether or not the, the convict was innocent? Yes, I, 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 there were cases, but most of the time you didn't get into, into the merits in depth. So you, you seldom were really presented with enough of the facts to actually uh, form an opinion on that. But there were a few. There's one in Pennsylvania, if I remember correctly, where there was serious doubt about whether the complaining witness or the defendant was really the perpetrator of the crime. And, and how did you feel when the execution took place and the court refused to stop it? Well, I, uh, I, I thought it was a mistake. Yeah. The final amendment that you propose has to do with uh, an amendment to the Second Amendment. And this is one of our most hotly contested uh, constitutional questions, and you've been at the center of this debate. Uh, under your amendment, uh, you'd add some language to the Second Amendment. You would say, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms when serving in the militia shall not be infringed. And those words, when serving in the militia, are the ones you would insert. Why would you do that? Well, the purpose of that language is to uh, bring out, bring to the fore the fact that the Second Amendment was really adopted for a narrow purpose, to prevent the states from having the uh, federal government basically take over their own, uh, their militias and disarm the states. And it, it was that limited purpose that was the source of the, uh, the Second Amendment itself. And it seems to me that, that our debates about the, the Second Amendment are somewhat, somewhat distorted by the, uh, the notion that the amendment was in fact motivated by a desire to provide, uh, protect the individual with, uh, 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 to defend himself. But and the, one of the consequences of the law as it's developed is that it, it has made not the state legislatures, but rather federal judges to have the final say on what kind of gun, con, gun control and gun uh, registration the state should adopt. It seems to me this should not be the province of federal judges. It should be the province of state legislature. And that's sort of the central message of, of, of the chapter. This chapter, although uh, compelling, d doesn't fit in that theme of government neutrality and fairness. It sort of dives right into a hotly contested historical debate where people on the other side say, well, there is evidence that either the framers or the post-Reconstruction people intended to protect an individual right. Why did you, why did you decide to include this gun control chapter along with your other six amendments? Well, there's a good argument for, for not controlling because I think it, it, it may well be that that... Uh, uh, D debate will not resolve itself in the foreseeable future. Although e even in that, I think in time, uh, the country will will come to the conclusion that other civilized countries have it right, where they basically uh, ban firearms. 
But I just didn't think I could write a book about amendments that I think are necessary and leave this one out. Because I do think it's a terribly important subject. I, I think in time it, the reason will prevail, but I'm not optimistic about this chapter uh, accelerating the process to bring it to a c conclusion within the next few years. Uh, Justice Stevens, you are a force of nature. When we last talked, you had just celebrated your 94th birthday and you were going to play tennis the next day. Uh, did you play the game and how did you do? I, I played the game. I was able, <laughs> able to remain vertical and I enjoyed it because I have a good friend on the other side of the court. But my game is nothing to be proud of now. Well, it was famously uh, uh, pretty good uh, and uh, I just think it's spectacular that you're still playing. Uh, Justice John Paul Stevens, it has been a great honor to have this conversation with, with you. Congratulations to you for writing this uh, new book, Six Amendments, How and Why We Should Change the Constitution. On behalf of C-SPAN and the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. Thank you Thank so much, Justice. Thank you very Justice. much. Thank you.